to hear the real and authentic gospel. Many groups and churches claim to be preaching the gospel of Jesus, but they preach different gospels, in fact, contradictory gospels. And it's a bit hard to blame the average non-Christian for not understanding the gospel when there are so many different gospels claiming to be the gospel of Jesus out in the marketplace. So today we come to the gospel according to Jesus. The passage in Matthew's gospel that Andrew just read to us from chapter 4 verses 12 to 17 where Jesus is preaching his gospel. It's not a complete gospel according to Jesus. This is the summary of Jesus' message. But a summary to be a summary means that it's actually caught the very heart of the message of Jesus. Whatever else is or is not part of the gospel this cannot be omitted in the final form of the gospel that will be authentically Christian. For the commencement of Jesus' public ministry is preaching this message. No longer is in Matthew's gospel is Jesus the passive recipient of his parents' decisions. Now he's the principal actor and from here on in through the rest of the gospel he is the principal actor in the dramatic events that unfold. And Matthew notes the timing of Jesus' commencement. It's when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. Uh, John had been denouncing the immorality of the Herodian family. It's always a dangerous thing to denounce the immorality of governments, especially governments that don't rule by the rule of law. And Herod the Tetrarch, who was in, in control at that point in time, put John into prison. In due time, as we work through Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see that Herod finally beheaded uh, John at the behest of his so-called wife. Uh, We read about John not only in the New Testament, we read about John outside the New Testament in the history of Josephus, for example, that great uh, Jewish historian of the first century, because you couldn't write the history of the first century Judaism without mentioning John. He was a national figure and his execution was a national tragedy. When Jesus heard that John was put into prison, Jesus started. It was as if the imprisonment of John was the signal that he was to take over where John was now unable to continue in the mission that John was engaged in. But what Matthew pays attention to is the location of this ministry, not just the timing. Jesus didn't start where we may think is the right place to start, the capital city, Jerusalem, the largest city, the the kind of centre of the culture from which everything spreads out. He didn't start in Jerusalem. Nor did he, like John, go out into the wilderness, which is where the nation of Israel came from, the wilderness, and to kind of go back to the roots of the nation and, and preach the message from there. He had been out there in order to be baptised by John. Uh, He was tempted by the devil out there. But now, now he goes to Galilee. Uh, Galilee is the backwater of Israel. It's the the country cousins, the Queensland of Israel. It's the part of Israel, I'm sorry, not the Queensland, I can see the Queenslanders are clearly upset by this thing. Uh, It's the Northern Territory. Uh, it's the, it's the country cousins, the part of Israel that was full of Gentiles as well as Jews. Down in Judea, 
most people were Jewish. Up in Galilee, which is north of Samaria, half the population was Jewish, half the weren't Jewish. It was the old northern kingdom called Israel that was defeated by the Assyrians 750 years before Jesus is now preaching there. I mean, it, it is like starting a new world empire from Alice Springs. It's not where you would expect it to happen. But it's, it's, even more, it's more like Darwin halfway through the Second World War, the place that was bombed and attacked and is not working, or possibly just after, after Tracy, when there's not much of Darwin left. It's not where you would expect to start the new world empire. For we read in verse 12, Jesus withdrew from the Judean wilderness, where John was, back to Galilee, back to Nazareth, his hometown, and then on to the Galilean port city of Capernaum, which is now going to be his new headquarters down by the Sea of Galilee. Now, why start in Galilee? It was more than just a kind of strategic retreat. This was, according to passage in front of us, so that, verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Jesus was intentionally, explicitly doing this to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, in particular, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, throughout the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we see that the right way to perceive and understand Jesus is through the lens of the Old Testament prophecies. Matthew repeatedly shows the connection with the Old Testament. Just turn back a page with me, back to the end of chapter 1, page 974, and see how verse 23 of chapter 1 is actually quoting Isaiah 7. And then in, that's why he's called Emmanuel. And then down in chapter 2, verse 6, you see, we find there the reason he was born in Bethlehem is to fulfill Micah chapter 5. And he goes down to Egypt and we're told in verse 15 of chapter 2 this was to fulfill Hosea chapter 11. And then the children are killed, which is reminiscent of, we're told in verse 18, Jeremiah 31. Even the fact that he came from Nazareth, we're told, fulfills prophecies in verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene. And John the Baptist, when he comes... He's fulfilling Isaiah 40 because chapter 3, verse 3, you see, it's Isaiah 40 if you want to understand John the Baptist. And when Jesus is baptised, the voice comes in chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son, which is Psalm 2, with whom I am well pleased, which is Isaiah 42. And then Jesus is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted, as we saw last week in the chapter 4, and three times he answers from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8, the great passage which explains the temptations of Israel in the wilderness and their failure, explain the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and his success. So if you're going to understand Jesus, says Matthew, you've got to know your Old Testament. That, that's, that's the glasses, that's the prism, that's the, the viewpoint from which Jesus will make sense to you. So when Jesus starts his ministry, it's at Capernaum, uh, up by the Sea of Galilee. It's in accordance, according to verse 14, with Isaiah chapter 9. Okay, well let's go and have a look at Isaiah 9, shall we? Turn back with me, it's page 692, 692 in our cathedral Bibles here. 692, Isaiah chapter 9. 
And there at the end of chapter 8, the judgment of God is coming upon the people. You see in verse 22, the last verse of chapter 8, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. The darkness refers to the Assyrian conquest that all but wiped out the ten northern tribes of Israel up in the area of Galilee. It, it happened, we know exactly when it happened, in 722 BC under Tiglath-Pileser II, the I. Well, it was Tiglath Pileser, I can't remember which number he was, but that's who did it, who was from Nineveh, the, the ruler in Assyria. Uh, they came marching around the Arabian desert, not across it, and therefore down from the north in their attack upon Israel. So although they actually were from the northwest, the attack came from the north because of the Arabian desert. And the destruction of Israel took place from the northern tribes working their way down until in 705 they came all the way down to Judah where they finally were stopped. The first tribes therefore to be affected were Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the ones who were living under the shadow of darkness. They were the ones who were living under the, the terror and the fear of the Assyrian conquest that is to take place. They were the ones who saw the destruction that the Assyrians worked. Now you and I, we watch it on television almost every night of the week, don't we? We see at the moment the poor people in Syria, those who are caught in their town where there's no way out and there's just constant bombing and the fear and the terror and where do you find food and how do you raise your children in this context and how can you hide any longer and this cousin's been killed and that brother has been shot and that fear was Naphtali, that fear was Zebulun because the Assyrians were pouring down the world's greatest empire was coming down to conquer Israel. Now while Isaiah 8 describes this dreadful news, Isaiah 9 starts with the great news, the great news of the future, the news of a day is coming, a new day, a bright day. The night is so appallingly dark but there is another time, there is a latter time, when the way of darkness will become the way of light. Chapter 9 verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The very place where the judgment of the nation took place will be where the salvation of the new age starts. And this new salvation is the new age of the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of David, the Christ. That is, Jesus in going up to Galilee was doing something very intentional. He was fulfilling this, not just in kind of the letter, oh, by the way, it says I've got to start here, but he's saying the new age of salvation is coming and it must come where the age of judgment came upon the Israel. And so as John went out to the wilderness to start the nation all over again, so Jesus goes 
to where Isaiah says to go, to start the new age of the light that is coming. Those who come on Christmas services, this verses 1 and 2 and the end of chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8 is always a problem for us. Because when we read it at Christmas time, people can't make head nor tail of Zebulun and Naphtali because they don't come to Bible study. But next time you come to Christmas and they start in chapter 9, verse 1, and you hear about Zebulun and Naphtali, you can say, ah, I know what that's about. That's, if you can remember, in December, what we're talking about in March. Because this is the great Christmas passage, isn't it? You see, what is the new age? Why? It's the age of the Messiah. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor have been broken, as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this couple of verses there it's almost impossible to read without breaking into song but mercifully for you I didn't here is the great Christmas passage you see this is and we're right to choose it as the Christmas passage because at the very point of the judgment of God the people who have been living in the darkness the new light the new day the new age is about to commence so when Jesus commences his ministry he goes intentionally to Galilee to start where the dawn of the new age was predicted to start. And returning now to Matthew chapter 4, page 976, Matthew chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One of the surprising things for modern Australians is the idea that Jesus was a preacher of the gospel. I mean, if we did our survey in the street, of which I've mentioned many times to you, or even in the cathedral square, and we were asked people, who was Jesus? We would hear all kinds of answers. Saviour, Lord, God, man, teacher, myth, miracle worker, Messiah, king. But I guarantee we wouldn't hear anybody say evangelist. Because evangelist doesn't fit in with anybody's positive views of life anymore. But that's what Jesus was. He was a gospel preacher. It's never the modern picture of Jesus. And yet the first time we meet him in the Gospels in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Mark makes it explicit and calls him an evangelist. The first, or calls him evangelizing. The first picture we get of Jesus, the man, is that of an evangelist. Jesus didn't go into the desert as a mystic. Nor did he raise up an army as a general, nor did he build a new temple, nor did he seek high political office or take over the stock market in Jerusalem. He didn't withdraw to a cave or to a mountaintop to practice the arts of meditation. He commenced by preaching the gospel. This is important to understand on several levels, for it indicates the whole understanding of how we relate to God. 
The God of the Bible is personal. The God of the Bible is alive. The God of the Bible speaks. The God of the Bible has created us by his word. The God of the Bible has created us by his word in his image. He relates to us by speaking to us. And we are to listen to him. Uh, Speech is very highly underrated these days. It is one of the most incredible things that we humans have. The capacity to communicate with such sophistication. The fact that English has how many hundred thousand words. The subtleties of a grammatical constructions. The ability to convey ideas from one to another. It's one of the great glories of our created state. It is God who speaks. But of course, the important thing about Jesus' preaching was the message he spoke. It's summarised for us there in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the message was identical to that of John the Baptist. If you just go back to chapter 3, verse 2, you see John was preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you learn that memory verse, you learn two verses for the price of one. It's the same. This message was identical. Jesus was continuing John's message, preaching the same one, calling for the same response. So let's take the next few minutes to unpack the message and recall again what the main burden of what the Lord Jesus preached. Firstly is the response to that preaching. Repent. Uh, That's not feel sorry but to change our mind and the actions as a result of that. It's the declaration you're going the wrong way. You need to stop and turn back. That's why the preaching of repentance is always so unpopular and the Christian preacher is nearly always an unpopular person. The preacher of repentance will always be that, especially, particularly amongst powerful people, successful people, because they don't want to repent. They're successful, as it is. People don't want to repent unless their life becomes chaotically dysfunctional. When everything else falls around about you, then you say, I need a new start. But as long as everything's going really well, what do I need a new start for? Then, and often not till then, will they review their life's choices, and when they're told of cancer or when their spouse leaves them or kicks them out or when they're retrenched into an early retirement they didn't want then suddenly all that they imagined they were living for all that they were holding dear is seen to be empty and it's time to rethink but then sadly there is likely not to give up as they are to repent Of course, the wise person makes good choices long before things reach such stage. A wise person listens to the words of the prophet or the evangelist who calls for repentance. But many of us don't wise up until things are dire. And then for many, it's too late to repent. It's too painful to repent. We're no longer in the company of a prophet who tells us to repent. While ever my life is happily distracted by wealth and pleasure, by friends and possessions, by advancement and career, the prophet who preaches repentance is met by very foolish heads in the sand. The successful fool 
never listens to the call to repent. Jesus gave a solid reason for this call to repent. For, he says, or because, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's real reasons for repentance. It's always reasonable to repent when you're going the wrong way. It's a sensible thing to do. It's always reasonable to repent in order to live a life by truth. It's always reasonable to repent when life is soured by experience. But Jesus gives another reason for repentance. Something else, something external to his hearers. Jesus' reason is the closeness of the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what is this kingdom of heaven? Just unpacking phrase by phrase here. Uh, The New Testament word heaven is like our word skies. Uh, it, It talks of the home of God. It's a euphemism for God himself. In Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, Jesus doesn't talk about the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the kingdom of God. If we're reading the parallel in Mark's gospel here, we'd see he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a euphemism for God. The kingdom of heaven is not a place. It's not like the United Kingdom. It's a, it's a government. It's a realm. It's, a, it's like the realm of nature. This is the reign, the realm of God. It's where God's will is done, where God reigns supreme over all people and reigns alone over all people. With the coming of the Messiah, God's kingdom on earth, God's reign on earth is to be established. It wouldn't be limited to Palestine. It was going to be all over all the nations for all time. This was to be the universal reign of God. And so with it would come both salvation for God's people and judgment for his enemies. For when God comes to save his people, rescue his people, redeem his people, he will do it by overcoming their enemies, destroying their enemies. So salvation and judgment always come at the same time. When you read children's books to little children, they're very frequently on Noah and the ark. They nearly always, when they're on Noah and the ark, about animals and how kind God is in caring for the animals. But when you read the Bible, you'll find that Noah and the ark is not really about the animals. Noah and the ark is about the judgment of God on mankind. And the salvation of mankind by the ark. God judges and saves. The very water that drowned people is the water that holds the ark up. It's a picture of both salvation and judgment simultaneously. As of course is the cross. There is the judgment of God by which we find mercy and forgiveness and pardon. Judgment and salvation come together. The kingdom of God, God's reign over the earth is about to come. Therefore, it's very important we get right with God. This is the moment of choice. Which side are you going to be on when God comes to rule his world? The moment to repent, to stop your rebellion against God, to stop your ignoring of him, to stop putting him on one side of your life, to stop living your life in opposition to him, the way to start living the way he wants you to live is when the king is about to come. Many people think that being a Christian is being a good person. 
When of course it's not about being a good person, it's being about being God's person. If you are God's person, hopefully that will make you good, but that's not what Christianity is about, the good person. It's about being God's person. I've told you before, and those of you who haven't been told before, listen carefully, and those who have, rejoice and enjoy hearing again about the man who was a very, very good sailor. He was a wonderful sailor. He did everything his captain ever asked him, and more. He was the person who always looked after everybody else. One of his shipmates got sick, He was the person who brought him the meal. He was the person who would stand in his place. He was the person who would contact his family and tell them what the problem was. He was the man who never was late back to ship. He was the one who would even say to his friends, look, you go on board, I'll stay on ship and mind the ship for you. He was kind, he was generous, he was faithful, he was loyal. He did everything that could be expected and more. There's just one piece of information I haven't given you about him yet. You see, the ship he sailed on was a pirate ship and the flag he sailed under was the Jolly Roger, the skull and crossbones. Now suddenly, everything you think about him should change. I hope it does. Piracy is really bad. If you're on his side now, we've got problems with you. Everything now changes, you see, because, in fact, even his goodness helped piracy. I mean, if he was a lousy, a lousy sailor, then he would hold back the cause of piracy. He'd let down the pirate king, and the, the piracy wouldn't work as well. But because he's such a good pirate, he actually advocates piracy. He advances the cause of piracy. The fact whether you're good or not good doesn't matter. It's a question of which flag your life is flowing under. Which side are you on? It's not whether you're good or not, it's whether you're gods or not. If you're flying under God's flag, then your goodness makes sense. But if you're flying under the Satan's flag, then your goodness only furthers the cause of Satan, strangely and perversely. It's which flag are you under? The kingdom of heaven is about to come. Make sure you're on the right side. That's the fundamental issue that is involved with the coming of the kingdom of God. But again, notice the reason to repent in verse 17. It's not just the kingdom of heaven, but it's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right upon you, says Jesus, what you've been waiting for since the days of the Assyrian Empire 750 years ago when Isaiah spoke of the latter days. These are the latter days. It's arrived. You've been waiting for and it's now come. And I'm now announcing to you it's here. The latter days have arrived, the kingdom has come and if you know your Isaiah, now is the time when who was a child has been born, a son has been given and the empire, and who do you think he's talking about? So that is the gospel according to Jesus. Hasn't changed since the days in which he preached it. There are more details that his life and teaching spelt out for us. Details about the cross and the resurrection. But there's no change in the central thrust of the message. The kingdom of God came with Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll see it in a couple of weeks at Easter time. The judgment of the world has commenced and the salvation of the world has commenced. So what John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is still the message for us to hear. 
And what Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is still the message for us to hear. And it's the message that requires action. Not just hearing and learning, but response in repentance. Jesus was publicly calling upon the nation that was under God, that was supposed to be God's nation, to get ready for the coming of the kingdom of God by pulling down the flag of self-will, of of rebellion, and running up the flag of Yahweh. And that's the message for today. There are still people here today, of course, in the kingdom of God, and there are others who are not in the kingdom of God. And there's no point claiming, well, I'm safe, I've been baptised, or I'm an Anglican, or something like that. The people of Israel were God's nation, and they weren't safe. God's judgment is not like that. God's judgment will be upon us one and all, and those who are not yet in the kingdom need to repent, whoever you may be. We need to repent. To say no to our whole way of life and to accept that we're going the wrong way and to turn back to God is what the message is. I spoke to a man some time ago. He had in his own life lived the moral good life. But he'd never studied God's word. Well done, you're here. Over the last weeks, before my conversation, he'd started to read what God said. And he'd come to realise that although he was in his own light a good and moral man, it was all going the wrong way. He said, I never knew, but now looking back, I wish I had known. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I now understand I was never doing God's thing. Here is the man who is beginning to repent. Here's the man who has sorrow and regret, but sorrow and regret is not going to lead to bitterness but he's going to lead to turning back to God and asking for forgiveness. Repentance is more than sorrow, it's more than regret. Repentance means turning our life over to God, turning to the loving and forgiving God who is sending his son to die that our repentance might find forgiveness and to raise him to new life that our repentance might find new and eternal life. Uh, That's why in the back of the outline we print here that prayer in the little box that I'm going to finish our gathering with today. It's the kind of, this is a prayer of repentance. You say, well, what do I have to do? This is is what you have to pray. That's what you've got to do. What do I pray? This is what you pray. It doesn't have to be word for word exactly this, but here's the idea. The first paragraph, I know that, I'm not... It's all about I, 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 because that's the trouble with our lives. We're not for God, we're for I. But notice what it says about I. I'm not worthy, I don't deserve, I'm guilty, I need forgiveness. The second paragraph is about you, God. Thank you, for you sent your son to die. Thank you that he rose from the dead. It has consequences for us that we might be forgiven and that we might be given new life. But the third paragraph is the repentance, you see. Please forgive me and change me that I may no longer live in opposition to you but I may live with Jesus as my ruler. First paragraph, I am going the wrong way. Second paragraph, thank you 
for giving me the possibility even of a new start. Third paragraph, forgive me, change me. I'm going to pray it out loud now. I hope you'll take it with you for these outlines. But if you want to pray it now, you don't have to wait till you get home and pray it. You can pray it with me right now. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you, and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me, change me, and I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Amen.